I hope that works. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, what a great joy, at least for me, and I think for all of us here, we wouldn't be here. Um, how good it is to um, be reunited again. Um, um, what a great, what a great gift for all of us um, to give ourselves to learning. Um, kids grumble in school, and um, people are here willingly. It's an amazing thing. I ask a special blessing on our efforts going forward this year for all of us, um, increasing us a spirit of openness to um, you and um, what these great poets have to offer. Um, they see so much more than we do, and, and they manage to help us open our eyes and do it in a way that opens our hearts as well. It's a great gift. I ask for an increased spirit of openness and a courage, uh, maybe most of all, because I personally don't believe we're meant to just read these and understand and show how smart we are. Um, we're meant to live them. So once we learn these things, whatever truths they give us, give us the courage to take them to the world. Um, help us to make, be strengthened in our efforts to make a defense of our own faith um, in a world that um, doesn't understand very well. So let that blessing be with all of us. Um, ask a special blessing on a number of people. Um, Tracy wrote us and um, said she misses us and will be looking in on the audios. The arrangement with uh, Madsen fell through. And if you remember, she had been working with this young woman for years um, and had adoptive parents and it looked so hopeful um, it's fallen through, and I know that's a crushing thing for her because she gave herself for years. So I ask a blessing on young Madison, help that girl get to her feet when there will be so little around her to help, um, the trouble is so deep. And a special grace for um, Tracy, um, help her come to her senses and get back to us. Um, um, ask um, a special prayer for David and Millie. David had surgery this morning, and apparently it went well. Mm -hmm. I know he's grateful for our prayers. Let his recovery go well. Help uh, Millie to have a good heart, a quiet heart, um, and speed them back to us. Ask a special prayer, prayer for our grace for um, Bob's sister, Barbara. Um, she's not well at all. Um, Whatever the prognosis is, um, help her to make her peace with it. Um, Bob as well, and um, all her loved ones. Um, um, whatever suffering she has to bear, strengthen her in her faith. Help her to know that it's a cross, and that in that suffering she will find a closer place with Christ. Um, help, help that to be a comfort to her. Um, and... Um, for Valerie and Chester and their daughter, um, let a grace surround that young woman um, where these things are possible, um, even when they're not. Um, give her a spirit of patience, um, a trust awaiting. It's hard for young people. Um, I know it's true for most of us when we're younger. Increase in her a spirit of waiting and trust. Um, and whatever happens, 
um, the Chester and Valerie go forward um, with a greater trust in you because things don't always work out the way we want them to. Um, but what we've learned certainly from Boethius and from e everything you offer us, Christ, um, you know what you're doing and you're um, always doing um, what's good for everybody with all the stupid things we do. Um, increase, strengthen in all of us our trust in you, whatever the difficulties. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, let's do Hopkins. Let me pull out Hopkins. One of the reasons for choosing Hopkins. Um, I'm going to do something that in my own mind at the end of our time today is, may seem really strange and far-fetched. I think you all would be used to it by now, but um, I'm going to make a claim that even scares me, so we'll see. But one of the reasons for doing the Hopkins poem is that when you read it, you, you realize that Christ is everywhere. I mean, it's something we've been talking about for the last year when we did Divine Comedy. You know that when Beatrice... Um, took Dante into the heavens that um, he found Christ everywhere. Um, remember in the Divine Comedy um, whatever he looked at whatever he looked at the moon, the spots, the circles around the planet, human beings material things, it didn't matter everything in nature has intelligibility it means something, a bird means something a flower means something, it has a meaning Everything in nature has a self. You've been hearing that from me for a long time. We don't, we, don't, we don't think of each thing as having a self. St. Thomas did. He called it a subjectivum, the Latin, something like that. It's that each thing was a subject in its own right. We think of persons as having selves, but not things. But every tree is a tree, and it's a particular tree being a tree. It does what a tree does. So each thing in nature has a self. It's being what it is. And if you, if you remember the poem Supernatural Love, you remember that everything in that poem speaks. The needle, the thread, the picture. There's nothing that doesn't speak. Which is another way of saying everything's intelligible. There's a logos, something behind it all, giving a logos, a meaning to everything in creation. If everything in creation is intelligible and everything's different, trees, birds, flowers, people, it doesn't matter. If everything's intelligible, um, how can there not be a creator who made them? Because they all share the same thing. I mean, it stuns me that scientists don't even look at that. If everything's intelligible, make sense of it um, in some, other, some way that doesn't imply a creator. How can all these things have intelligibility if they weren't created by a creator who was intelligent? So, in this poem, um, Hopkins is speaking to that, what he believes is a truth, you know, that all things have a self. Um, so, hold, hold on to that. Just hold on to this while we read, because I want to come back to it when we're done with everything. Um, each thing has a self, it's being what it is. 
the rocks when they're tumbling down the well. They're rocks. They're rocks. They're making noises. Listen to what he says. He talks about the bell clanging. And he uses the word tongue because you know that the rim around the bell is called the tongue and the clangor is. So he's playing on the, the, it's a pun on the word tongue. Just another way of reinforcing his sense that all things speak. Okay? The question I ask, I mean, I, um, for all of us, do we hear them? We're in a scientific world in which we believe that there's no selfhood to things, that all things are these impersonal forces working in nature. I've said for years, reading St. Thomas, remember St. Thomas said, everything in the universe is motivated by love. Love is the motive. The, 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 uh, the appetitive, um, the appetite for good. So they're in a flower, put a sunflower on the deck and watch the sunflower move through the day. It'll always move to the sun. There isn't anything in creation that doesn't have as its end a good. A wolf, spider, doesn't matter. just doesn't matter. Everything in creation is, is motivated, moved by that good, whatever it is. St. Thomas calls that love because it comes from a God of love. We explain it in terms of physical forces. He would, he would explain it in terms of an appetitive power, an intellectual power. We read that passage, remember, from St. Thomas where he says, human beings have an, an appetitive power. Um, and an intellective power. We think, we long. He believes that intellective power, that apprehensive power, is in everything in creation. In some things, it's there in the created thing itself, us. In others, it's there by virtue of its creator who created it. So even if a, even if a flower doesn't have an apprehensive power in it, doesn't know, that apprehensive power is present in it by virtue of its creator. It still has a purpose. It moves to the sun, or rain, or light, or you know, whatever it is. So we've talked about this you know, for years. It's been a, something I've been hitting you all over the head with probably for years. But that's very much behind St. Thomas, and it's very much behind Hopkins here. So Hopkins is just writing this poem on kingfishers and dragonflies and other things. But he makes clear that every one of these things is speaking. Okay, It has a self. I can't think of Suzanne... Um, doing her flowers, and I know that I, I, I know it's more true for women, uh, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking for women. The care that she shows for flowers, I mean, it's as if that flower has a self. I've, I've heard of some women speaking to flowers, I, and I believe it. It's a sort of nurturing quality, you know. So Hopkins is speaking to that, what for him is a universal truth, okay? That all things in creation are intelligible, all <coughs> things speak. The question is, do we hear them, God, or have we become tone deaf? You know, we're so in our worlds so that we, we don't hear the selfhood in things. Hopkins is trying to recover something of that, okay? Kingfishers catch fire. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim in roundy wells, stones ring. Like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being, indoors each one dwells, 
Christ indwells in everything. How could it not be? He created everything. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. <clears throat> Deals out that being, endures, each one dwells. Cells goes itself. Myself, it speaks and spells, crying. What I do is me, for that I came. I say more. The just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings, graces. Acts in God's eye, what in God's eye he is, Christ. Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. You know, we've talked about the rhymes. I don't want to go into that, but, you know, we've talked about rove over, how lines, how lines run on, so the speed runs on, and sometimes he'll stop on words and slow down or speed up because he's trying to imitate that thing. So when, he, when he's describing the, you know, the stones, has tumbled over rim and roundy well, you can hear it. God, I'm going to do these. Um, and then watch those lines in the, in the concluding um, sestet. I say more, he goes on. Keeps grace, keeps all graces going, acts in God's eye, what in God's eyes he is. Christ, boom, stops. That whole motion comes to an end on the first syllable of a line. You know, that, it's just, it's that ear he has in a way of calling attention to something. Just a, they're beautiful things that he's doing in this poem. Okay, Kingfisher's Catch Fire. Um, okay. Let's see. What's the pool? What's the amount? How much is, how much is in there now? I guess I should have done over-under. <laughs> Um, okay. Sorry about these glasses. Like, this is going to get awkward for me. Looking out over glasses. Okay, a couple of things to do before we look at Chaucer. I want to do a, a very, very quick review. Um, one of the things we saw in Milton was that Milton was working within the epic tradition, but radically, absolutely radically changed it. In one sense, he let the cat out of the bag in all epics. What he did was go back to the fall to show, to explain everything else. Every epic implied it, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. They all looked back to an idealized world that was lost to man. They didn't know about the fall, but they had this sense in their imaginations and in their traditions that man had had this greatness once and long to get back to it. That was the backdrop for all the epics. Um, Odysseus wanting to return home, Nostos, to go home. The Divine Comedy, remember the Purgatorial, longing to go home, to, to recover what we once had. At the root of every epic is this longing for some goodness that we've lost. Okay? Milton was working with that in Paradise Lost because he was writing an epic. He knew about it. Um, so he took the fall, but, but he did it during the Reformation when the Reformation um, theologians were making these arguments. Um, and according to the Reformation thinkers, the effects of the fall were complete, utter ruin. Catholics don't believe that. The Protestants did. Thanks. That the effects of the fall, the consequences of the fall were complete. Man was depraved. He lost his free will. He lost his reason. All of his natural powers were blackened. That dark view of man is still with us today. 
The Catholic doesn't believe that man's fall was complete. Um, we believe that man was wounded. His essence was, you can't destroy an essence. God made man good. We believe that we were wounded. We call it concupiscence. And, and I, I'm trusting that everybody in here knows that when any of us are under the effects of our sins, whatever that sin happens to be, concupiscence feels like it's overwhelming. I mean, we can't, I'm going to speak for myself right now. There are times when I, I do something, and I, I mean, with everything I'm doing to resist it, and I'm aware of a weakness that is so deep. So it's easy to understand where people would come to this sense that our, the effects of the fall are complete. The Protestants didn't believe that, so they, they brought a very darkened view to the world. Milton brought it to the epic. And you know from the epic that he took Satan as the alleged, apparent epic hero. It's, a, it's Satan. So he's doing everything the epic heroes did. He took on this quest, but his quest is to spite God. Because remember, he lost heaven. And we know that he's going to be ruined late in the, after the battle in heaven. Satan's going to be returned to hell, and he, he and all the other dark angels will crumble into dust and turn into nothing. But, but he, he gives Satan that stature. And, and it's a way of illustrating for Milton the complete loss, because we know that what comes out of the fall from Adam and Eve, when, from um, uh, Milton's treatment of them, that they fall and are exiled. The, the poem ends, Milton, Paradise Lost ends with Adam and Eve leaving Paradise. And we understand from the descriptions there that there are only two virtues that they have. And those are the only two virtues, patience and endurance. Okay. So the ep he completely changes the epic hero. The epic hero becomes characterized more by his passivity, what he will endure, as if anything active is not good, just by virtue of the fall. Um, so if we go back to the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, I'm, and I'm going to speak on this quickly. I'm sorry, I'm not going to go to the board. Remember that the great virtue of the, Achille, or the um, Iliad is Kleos. Remember? Honor. Kleos. The book begins with um, a ransoming that Agamemnon refuses, and then Agamemnon takes Achilles' woman and tells him to go get his own woman, and Achilles is furious and withdraws from the war. What's interesting about the Iliad is that battle's been going on for nine and a half years. It's all for the sake of honor. Um, Menelaus was dishonored when Paris took his wife. The Greeks want to avenge that, so they've gone on this war. That battle's been going on for nine and a half years. And tr I think, I mean, people who talk about ending it, I just don't think are reading it correctly. That battle would go on for another nine and a half years. No Why? Because they're men killing each other for the booty they get. It's not going to stop. They'll never answer it. It's like Islam and Judaism over a question of justice. That battle will not end. If, if what's at issue is justice by itself, somebody's always going to be offended. Can't stop. So what motivates everybody in that book is this sense of kleos, of honor. Um, Achilles is, is, is humiliated by his king, and he, you know, he withdraws and you know what happens. In the ninth book, Agamemnon comes and says, I'll give you all this stuff to come back into the war. And he says, I, I refuse it. Such honor is a thing I need not. 
I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. So a new sense of honor is introduced into the West in that scene. Honor, honor no longer depends on booty, get my PhD and I can have all this power and get all this money. If honor is conferred that way, it can be taken away. What Achilles makes clear is there's something deeper than that kind of honor, that it's conferred by God. There's this intrinsic worth to the human being that the world doesn't know about. You've heard me say it again and again. The Iliad is one of the best critiques of America that's ever been written. It was 2,000 years before America. Because what drives America? Booty, wealth, possession, prestige, image, power. Same things that drive the Iliad. What Homer is showing us is that there's something deeper. There's something intrinsic. What's the cost of it? It doesn't come to Achilles finally until he dies, when he goes back into the war knowing he's going to die. My argument is that's already a premonition of Christ, because Christ makes it clear none of us will ever know who we are until we learn to give up our lives. That's the great truth at the center of Christianity. By the way, it's the great truth at the center of Chaucer when we get there, even if it sounds sort of funny right now. So, Cleos, what's the great virtue of the Odyssey? Sing, muse, the man of many ways. Prudence. To know what to do under the right circumstances, when. What drives Odysseus in all that he does? Nostos. Nostos. Nostoi. Home. From which we get nostalgia. What's the Divine Comedy about? Dante's going home. He's wanting to return the Father. So, what's the great virtue of the Odyssey? Prudence. The Aeneid. You know that Virgil is carrying the Iliad and the Odyssey forward and incorporating them into the Aeneid. The first six books of the Aeneid are based on the Odyssey. It's the wanderings. The last six books of the Aeneid are based on the Iliad, a war. <coughs> One of the great truths that Virgil is showing us is that we will never, ever in our lives, learn to come into the present and become who we are without carrying our past with us. People who want to disown the past because it's a cross are partially denying Christ. It's... We won't come to ourselves until we bear it. It's one of the great truths of the Aeneid. What's the great virtue? Pietas, piety, reverence. Remember, the the great struggle for Aeneas is learning learning to listen to the gods. And every time he thinks he understands them, he finds he completely misunderstands Remember, he keeps, gods give something, he misunderstood it. He goes on, he finds out he misunderstood it again. It's the first explicit treatment of what we come to call a calling. That every one of us is called to something. Do we always get it right? Mm, not according to Virgil. Um, over and over and over and over again, he keeps trying. And one of the loveliest things, those of you who've done the Aeneid will remember this. When he comes to Carthage, and Juno has the temple of, or I mean, uh, Dido has the temple of Judo, and it has the whole story of the Trojan War on it. Aeneas is standing there. He's been, try- he's been trying to found a home for eight years, failing again, again, again. Failing again and again and again. He stands before that temple and he sees the Trojan War and he's looking at the man who's a reflection of himself, this great hero. 
Is anybody in that crowd aware of the discrepancy between Aeneas as he sees himself that moment, a great failure, and this epic hero depicted in story? So everything about Virgil has a, has a deeper sense of irony to everything going on than we get in Homer's world. But the great virtue is piety, a love of the gods, so great that it helps this man keep going. What's the end? To found Rome. And remember, Rome's the eternal city. It's the universal city. It's the one city that will not die out. Every one of Aeneas' failures deal with cities that die. They all die out. There's something lacking in them because they're too partial. It's like what Theseus deals with with the Amazons or the Thebians. Too aristocratic, too, sec too sexist. Or, um, it's the universal city. It will not die out, and it's for everybody. In the Greek world, the love was of individual heroism. In the Roman world, it was the common man. Everybody. The, a man, no matter what his stature, good or bad, high or low, wealthy, poor, important, unimportant, it did not matter. He was worth dying for. That's what made Rome great. Remember the, the if you remember the Aeneid, the, the Dido's image was this war horse. That was the image of Carthage, this war city. The image of Rome, that piglet, in a, or the pig in the 30 piglets, this ordinary, common, ugly thing. Rome came into existence because it included everybody. So, <laughs> one of the reasons that I have real troubles with Milton is because I love... I love those virtues. So what were the ancient virtues? Prudence, temperance, courage, justice. For the Catholic, for Dante, those were natural virtues, and our fall didn't take them away. They wounded us badly in the way that we do this. We know that we're not always as just as we should be, or prudent, or... But those are in our nature. What does Dante show us? Exactly that. So when we, when we went from Milton to Dante, we went from a, a world, remember we talked about how important the, the angelic imagination was for Milton, that Adam was learning angelic ways of knowing. Dante starts with the ordinary thing. Himself, uh, Beatrice, a woman in the street. And the strange thing is that he saw in that woman in the street an image of the Trinity. That early experience of her, so it just it, it left its mark, he couldn't leave it. He carried her with him and everything. She was the inspiration, finally, for the Divine Comedy. So when we went from Milton to Dante, we, we went from a Protestant epic, which darkened all of the natural virtues, to a Catholic epic in which, <laughs> interesting, Dante carries that whole past forward, just the way Virgil did with Homer, and he makes it active, because who's his guide for two-thirds of it? Virgil. It's his way of showing. You don't ever disown the past. You learn from it. You carry that past forward because it guides you. It helps you to see what to do and what not to do. In hell, he, he, he showed us every possible sin we could imagine. Why did he do that? He's like a doctor. He, he's so discriminating, so discerning. He showed us every sin so we could learn to see ourselves because if we learn to see ourselves, we have a, we have a chance of correcting ourselves. If we don't, we're blind. What do we do? We go around our life thinking we're, you know, we're okay. 
when we're not. So he showed us everything about hell, everything about our sins and the purgatorio. He showed us how important memory was and mercy. That the difference between the people in purgatorio and hell is that the per people in purgatory wanted mercy. They longed to be with God, so they were willing to take on their penances to become better people. And remember, we talked about that, how important memory is, that the whole movement of... Think about hell. In hell, everybody's fixed. There's no time for them. They're fixed in a present that will never change. Whatever they're doing, they're going to do forever and act as if that's what they want to do. God, it's just a, such a frightening image for me. People in purgatory are changing. Yeah, they're growing. They're changing. They're taking on penances. They, they, want, they want mercy. They love God. They want to go back. So the whole action of purgatory is a longing to go home, to recover what they once had that they've lost. That's why memory was so important. And then remember in the Paradiso, uh, Beatrice takes up for, over for Virgil and takes Donnie through the heavens um, until finally they, they share the... Or, she leaves him shortly there before the end. But he has this vision of the Trinity, and it, the, the Divine Comedy ends with Dante tr trying as hard as he can to square the Trinity with this figure in the center. This is an infinite God, infinite being, but at the center of it is this God who has a human form. And, you know, we're left with that paradox. And, I, and my last words on it were that it's a great affirmation of our human nature and our human body. And I tried to underline that because, underscore it, because I believe we live in an age that tends to demean the body. I thought John Paul's Theology of the Body was one of the most important works in our generation. There's just this tendency to look down as if as human beings, because we've got this mortal body, you know, we're not good, um, Christ took on a body. He's, he celebrated our nature. That one of the things that we get from Dante is this, it's not angelic not angelic. Um, there's this extraordinary creature called a human being. St. Thomas said he's the most extraordinary thing in creation, that the human soul is worth more than the entire material universe. That's how extraordinary man is. Christ ought enough of us to offer himself. So it seems to me the Divine Comedy is this great affirmation of the Trinity and this great affirmation of the human person, that there's this great glory. We, we shouldn't be miserable or sad because we're not better than we are. We, we want to be who we are. We want to just try to become good. You know, each one of us try to become the person God gave us to be, um, but be glad for being human because that's an extraordinary thing. So that's where we were. That's, um, how am I doing on the pool? I've got a chance here? <laughs> no. No? no. I don't know. <laughs> the, the naysayers. <laughs> Three truths I want to take away from this. Three truths. One, I'm just repeating what we talked about you know, last spring. One, purity of spirit cannot be racial, cannot be national, cannot be sexual, cannot be private. Purity of the spirit can't be Greek Orthodox, can't be Turkish, can't be Anglican, can't be Episcopalian. The minute somebody breaks off from the unity of the church, that body becomes capable of making whatever truths they want. 
Um, if you guys went online and, and looked up that line I sent you all, um, it was interesting because on that same page they had a story about a, I think it was a Russian Orthodox priest talking about um, Greek Orthodox or Turkish Orthodox and saying that the two communions couldn't share with each other. That if Russians went to the Turkish Orthodox Church, because ordinarily they're in communion, they couldn't receive communion, vice versa. That when people break down, they, they can radically affect the dogmas and the way that they're practiced. Um, purity of spirit cannot be national, cannot be racial, cannot be ethnic, Greek, whatever. It's Catholic, it's one with Christ and the cross that, that asks of everybody who's a believer. And it can't be private, as the Protestant theologian said. Why not? Milton, remember, shows God is isolated, alone almost. It's, it's, it's almost an Aryan treatment of God. Because our God is not a private God, even though Milton presents him that way. Our God is communal in his nature. It's three persons. Imagine our gods without, I mean, imagine Christ with the Father and Son and not indwelling in each other. If we're made in his image, every single one of us, whether we're married or not, doesn't matter. Whether we're married or not, each individual human being was meant to love and be loved. And there's some way in which if we don't do that, we're not becoming who we were when we were made in God's image. <clears throat> By, by virtue of our nature, we're communal. Even if we're alone, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to espouse marriage here, I'm just saying, that's our nature. If a person's absolutely isolated from others, that's got to be a miserable existence. We're not made that way. We're made to be with others, whatever that means. You'd be alone in working with people. Sisters, priests, live that kind of life. Come on, Linda. <coughs> So first is, purity of spirit cannot be racial, national, sexual, private. Okay. Second, the corruptions of the church can never be a reason for changing dogmas. Fundamental dogmas were changed in the Reformation. Absolutely fundamental, changed. The corruptions of the church can't be answered by changing the dogmas. You reform the church, the people, Dominicans, Cistercians, Whatever, whatever order will come into our own, you know. And we have to, the church is, the church has never been without corruptions. Ever. Look at Peter. The church is never, it will never, it will never in time not have corruptions. The answer to the corruptions isn't to change the dogmas. It's to change the way we do things and re-inspire and, you know. Um, so that's second. Third. And this goes more directly to the work we've been doing in the literature. We have to reconceive our understanding of genres. I'm not just going to say, like it has nothing to do with history and church theology. We have to reconceive our notions of, of genres. And I'm thinking particularly here of tragedy. Christ's advent changed the way we view life. Life is no longer tragic. For the pagans it was. Because for, for the pagans, death was it. Yeah. Um, they didn't know hope, faith, and charity because those are supernatural virtues. They're from God. Man can't. The great virtues for a pagan, it should be for all of us, 
um, prudence, justice, temperance, endurance. Those are the virtues we're supposed to strive to live in our lives, to become that way. But Aristotle knew nothing of hope. Where is Aristotle in the Divine Comedy? The virtuous pagans, it's the first level of hell. Are they being punished? Absolutely not. They're good men. Can they see God? No. The one thing they lack? Supernatural virtues. A Christian knows, however dark it gets, however dark it gets, it doesn't matter. We're supposed to live in hope. Hope means nothing if we don't do it exactly in the moment when we have no reason for hoping. Or it's not hope. We're back under our human powers again. We're supposed to hope when we have no reason for hoping. We're supposed to love when we have no reason for loving. How to do that? I don't know of any other way except the cross. If, if those virtues don't imply a cross, I don't know what they imply. How can we hope when there's no reason to hope unless it's, we start to suffer? That it's not going to go the way we think it's going to go. So the supernatural virtues enter the world with Christ, and when they do, it changes our attitude towards life. So the Divine Comedy is called the Commedia. It's a comedy. How does it start? In hell. Is there anything tragedy? Is there anything tragic about hell in Dante's world? Absolutely not. Why? Because the people chose to be there. Is there anything more stupid? Tell me that's tragic. I can't imagine anything more stupid. If you're in a Christian universe, and, and remember, when Christ harrowed hell, he brought out all the Old Testament, the, mm -hmm. the people before Christ. Hell is, tragedy, tragedy falls away. Tragedy because of the subgenre under comedy. That's why Dante called, the book is called The Divine Comedy. Look at Chaucer. Chaucer deals with tragic situations all the time. Do they leave us with a tragic feeling? Never. Because he's in a Christian world, everything Chaucer's doing is meant to help us hope, even when things are hard. Knight's Tale, Palamon killed, a seat killed, Emily has to marry when she doesn't want to marry. What we, what we witness, what we experience in those three characters, they become most themselves when they learn to give their wills up. And, and the virtue that defines them is charity, love of another. So we've entered a new world and it redefines our, our works. Um, the Divine Comedy, Chaucer, and let me just take Shakespeare. Shakespeare wrote a number of tragedies that, are, that I believe are genuine tragedies. How does he end his life? With what we call romances, and I think the greatest is Winter's Tale. Those of you who did the Winter's Tale, remember the first half of the Winter's Tale is Othello's story. Othello believes his wife has been unfaithful, and he, he ends up killing Desdemona. That's a tragic play. The whole first half of Winter's Tales is the Othello story. And it's better because in Othello, it's Iago who works on Othello, mm -hmm. who brings him to his tragedy. It's not a choice of his own. He's deceived. He ends up killing his wife. Iago so works on him. In Meontes, nothing. Shakespeare makes clear that jealousy of his wife's come from inside himself. He's responsible. Fully. What's the outcome? It's one of the most extraordinary experiences in all of literature. He and his wife are reconciled. Um, it's, to me, it's one of the most tearful experiences in my life to watch the two of them come together. Sixteen years. A winter's tale. So even Shakespeare, you know, I think at some point truly realized that the, the ultimate end of all experiences in a Christian worldview would be 
what, either comedy or forgiveness. But any, anybody who goes to hell, it's not going to go there from some tragic circumstance. Let the tragedy be as great as it is. Nobody will go to hell who doesn't want to choose to go. Because there's not a one of us living, no matter what our... David committed murder, adultery. Peter betrayed his Lord. There's not a sin that we know that hasn't been committed by some of the best people in the world. Saints, the founder of the church. There's no reason any of us will go to hell because of our sins. It's because we don't go to Christ to ask for forgiveness. So it's a very different worldview that Christ... So the, the literature of the modern world changes, and that's what we're going to see in Chaucer. Okay, it's, it's why he's so, so funny. Okay, very quickly. Just two, two truths about Boethius. One is you know that there's that line where Boethius, after he's shown that God's behind everything... There is no fortune, no piece of fortune that is not good fortune. That was one of those lines we I repeated a number of times when we went through it. Because God's at work behind them all. It doesn't matter how bad it is. What's important is what we do with it. Because remember, the opening question is, why am I here suffering? It's the Job story. We know the Boethius is going to be executed unfairly. This is a good man. By our standards, you should have a good job, money, the kind of person we'd say, look how good I am, I've got this job, I get this salary. And suddenly something happens and it's taken all away from him and he's whining. <laughs> so lady philosophy comes and says, stop your whining. The, tro <laughs> the trouble with you, you've been reading too much poetry. Whining um, is between this and that. <laughs> oh, right, right. Um, <clears throat> Anyway, she says, you've lost your way. The trouble with you is you've forgotten who you are and what your beginnings and ends are. If your beginnings and ends were God, wake up. God allows, thi God allows things, God allows evil men to prosper and good men to suffer because he's trying to protect our, our free will. It was our choice. We fell. We, we learn to take better care of our choices because we learn to suffer the consequences of them. And if, if we're in a Christian world, Presumably, we're learning to trust in God more and more. Because so often our sin is, is um, thinking we can do it all ourselves. We don't need him until things get bad. So one of them, in, remember that all fortune is good. And the other one to hold on to is, remember he said, every single present moment in a story, in reality, and the importance for me is because it's in a story, it's a narrative. Every single present moment, now, 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 now. Every single present moment participates in an eternal present. Shakespeare calls it a, a mockery, a parody of the eternal present. So what's important is what we do with each moment, how we look at it, whether we understand our beginnings and our ends and that God's working behind things. Is that, is that really a part of our lives? It's one of the great truths that um, Boethius shows. We started reading Chaucer and we took on the Knight's Tale. And, um, and what we saw was how important Boethius was for Chaucer. I, I'm assuming that as you guys have been reading the stories you've been seeing, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to read a story by Chaucer and not find Boethius everywhere. He's just he's there. But remember the line at the end of um, Knight's Tale when Theseus addresses the company, says, um, make a virtue of necessity. Make a virtue of necessity. 
make a virtue of necessity. That's Boethian. There is no bad fortune. The question is what we will do with it. We can complain and whine when things are inconvenient, we want to change the world. Um, what we're being asked to do is do what God does. Whatever our sufferings, however bad things go, to work with God means to do everything we can to bring good out of evil. Whatever bad things, to make it, to bring a good out of it. Every one of the poets that we've read has done that, or we would not have read them. Homer, Virgil, Dante, doesn't matter. Shakespeare, doesn't matter. Every one of them. Um, remember the focus in Knight's Tale was courtly love. That these two men love this woman, Emily, and um, and remember they both come from this Thebian aristocratic old world country. The, the story begins with Theseus having defeated the Thebians because they're too noble, they're too aristocratic. It's, it's what makes those two men noble, but it's also what makes them fight. They're ready to kill each other because their passions are so noble. They need to learn to put their passions away. And they're so in love with that woman that and they were cousins' brothers when the play start, story started. They're ready to kill each other in the middle of it. That's how close. So that's what you do with the bloodline. But at some point when, when the object of what you love is, means that much to you, you'll, you'll do a violence in the name of it. So the focus in Chaucer in The Knight's Tale was courtly love and marriage. And what we saw at the end was that nobody can come to who they are in a Christian world without learning to give their wills up, to, to deny themselves for the good of another. Because otherwise what we've got is selfishness. We're back in Iliad, booty, I want this, look how good I am, look how much money I make. Booty, 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 booty. That sounds really sexual. <laughs> the other kind of booty, you guys. Um, so the focus on Chaucer was courtly love and marriage and the importance of denying ourselves in order to love. So we're now... We have squarely left the pagan world and entered the Christian world. We did Midsummer Night's Dream in Shakespeare because Shakespeare was doing the Theseus story too. Remember in Theseus, or in, in Chaucer, Theseus defeats the Thebians. It's that old aristocratic culture that still exists everywhere in the world today. And he defeats the Amazons, the women, because the women hold together... The, the, the nature of their tie with each other is their dislike of men. So it's exclusive. So Theseus is a founder. The, the reason he's so important for us as an image of Western civilization is because he represents a, a democratic image. Like Aeneas in Rome. That Greece, in its beginnings, under Theseus, was meant to a democracy. It was different from Thebes, the aristocratic city, the violent city, the noble city was where all people could come together. That's exactly Dante's image, too, of the New Jerusalem at the end of the Paradiso. In Shakespeare's treatment of Theseus, we see that the real focus is not only the lovers in the forest, but the city. Because remember, the problem he's facing in Midsummer Night's Dream is just not courtly love and marriage. It's the city. How to bring different classes of the city together. 
the mechanics, the nobles, who are always going to kill each other, and that's what the noble spirit does, and the ruler. And what we see at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream is, a, is an ordering, a proper ordering of the city. And we're into the modern world. And that's where we are today. How'd I do? <laughs> Let me stop. Wait, you're on a roll. Keep going. No. No, I want to give you guys... Hold on, because we're going to start Chaucer. But I just want to... I, I know that that's a lot, but I really want to carry this forward. I mean, it just... there's I, These are... These are founding principles, and it just, they're so much a part of who we are, and it, these things are so neglected today, so I just wanted to take a few minutes, and we'll, we'll do the Miller's Tale and the Reeves Tale right now, but any questions or comments or thoughts? Um, I'm going to read one statement. One of the reasons Shakespeare is far more concerned with the city as an entity than Chaucer is, remember, the, the, um, one of the defining qualities of the modern state is its separation from the church. The church and state have been separating out through the whole of the Middle Ages. Dante's aware of it. That's why his work is so important. Remember the Gels and the Ghibellines? Those associated with the Pope, those with the Emperor, and the, the, the deathly battles they fought. It was to gain independence from both of those powers because so long as they, so long as the church was in power, we used political power to force people in their beliefs. Beliefs had to be free. Belief in God had to be free. So that sorting out of the church and state was not a small issue. I argued last year that it was one of the great accomplishments of the medieval church. Different from Islam, absolutely different from Islam, even Judaism. Um... Um, and one of the ironies about the American founding is you know, the American founding was theocracies. I mean, we were, in a sense, moving back. But here, let me. One of the one of the reasons I think the city becomes more important for Shakespeare is because he's a modern writing aware. Remember, we said this. Shakespeare did plays on Italy, France, Navarre, Spain, England. Um, I think I've given you that list. He did, oh, why? In his, I think in his Catholic sense, he saw the importance of, of helping us to learn to see how each regime was different. In Plato's cave, each regime is different, and each setting had to learn with a different kind of problem. So on the verge of modernity, he takes us into that complexity. That's not a medieval problem. It's just It's not there yet. But it is there with Shakespeare and moderns. It's there with Machiavelli in some way. So, um, so once the Holy Roman Empire disintegrates and the modern state is turned loose, um, we enter what I'm going to call the period of totalitarian powers. The, the state begins to assume powers without a check from the church. And what we watch in the modern world is states assuming absolute powers. I, I believe they're going on in America today. And people can disagree, but... <coughs> So the state begins to assume totalitarian powers, and um, there are two great tasks for the modern world after Shakespeare. How do we reconcile love and law, justice and mercy? That was the great reconciliation in Dante, up the pur purgatory to paradiso. Remember, inferno, hell is a place of law only. Purgatory is mercy, reconciling with law. They're not divided. 
Um, remember, um, we talked about this at the end of Midsummer Night's Dream. The, the mechanics put on the play Pyramus and Thisbe. And you know from that silly play that Pyramus and Thisbe die. They commit suicide, both of them. The founder there is Ninus, Nineveh. He's the founder of Babylon. What happens with the lovers in Shakespeare? They're about ready to kill each other. Same thing. But they get back to the city and they're reconciled with the city. So law and love in the West, it's possible for law and love in the West to get reconciled. In the East, it hasn't happened. There's a Christian God who, who reconciled law with love when he went to a cross. It was an answer to an injustice with a justice. Remember, that's Dante's argument. But also with a divine love. So one of the things that made, what Shakespeare's showing us is in the West, the West has a power of renewal because it can bring law and love together. Separate those out, you just got chaos. I mean, I'm sure all of us know, though, it's much harder to just let somebody go or, or to hold somebody under a law. It's much harder to bring the two of them together. That's the great challenge that Christ left us with, with his life, and for us as moderns going forward. Dante answered it. There's not a Shakespeare play, there's not a play Shakespeare written in which he doesn't reconcile those two. Read the plays closely and you'll see it. So the question facing us as modern is how do we bring law and love, justice and mercy together? First, secondly, um, how do we protect the individual against the encroachments of state powers? Because state powers are increasing without check. It doesn't have the curbs of the church. And you know that the individual is more and more isolated in his powers. He has, I mean, individual rights are being taken away right and left everywhere in the world. So, so two of the great tasks the modernity presents us with that we've learned from our reading are those. How to reconcile love and law. It's much easier to do it. Remember, St. Thomas said, um, mercy without justice. Let it go. Mercy without justice is the, the mother of disasters. It's much harder to bring law and love together. I don't, I'm speaking personally. I don't see it happening without a cross for anybody who takes on that struggle. That's one. The second is, how do we protect the individual, the dignity of the individual person against powers that are increasing in the modern state? Shakespeare, I think, is the one who's dealt with that, those problems better than anybody in the world. So that's where we are. Um, that's where we ended up last spring and had to stop in the middle of Chaucer and now we're going to go back to a medieval world. But let me stop. Any, any... Repeat that last question. How do we protect the dignity of the... The individual against the state the when the state's powers are increasing all the time? I think all of us know that problem. What is the definition of love? Love is... Um, and I'm serious about it. No, no, I'm giving it. I'm, I know you're serious. <coughs> you're Marcy. <laughs> you're serious and funny, too. Um, love is the giving of oneself for the good of another. Christ's words were, um, as a friend, we said, it was even in the readings this week, that to, to, to give our lives, it was even for a friend, for... 
There is no greater love, love than, than to give your, your life for a friend. For a friend, yeah. Love, it, love means offering yourself for the good of another. And by the way, I know, I'm, I'm trusting everybody. It doesn't have to always come down to life. I mean, it may face a life and death matter, but very often it's just in the small things that we do with each other daily. How much of what we do, we do for... I remember this one married guy saying of his wife, you know, that she gives a lot, but he reached a point in the marriage when he said, but everything she does is for herself. We can give a lot. We can give a lot and be doing those things for ourselves, men or women. In our daily lives, we can be seen doing a lot for... Are we really doing it that way? Love means loving another enough to do it for that person's good. And I'm... I'm that means the whole range of things. Some of those things are not going to be easy. Let a, let a wife ask her husband to do something that's going to be really hard for him. Take How gracious is he, is he going to be in doing it? Let a husband ask something of his wife that's not going to be easy for her. How gracious is she going to... You know, it's, I mean, love is not easy. Otherwise, why would Christ have had to go to a cross? Here, any just broad questions for what we just did last spring? Any because I want to, we've got to, I want to do the Miller's Tale and Reese because there's something really good going on here. I want to. You really can't ask that question. No. Okay. Is there anything broad over the entire last semester? <laughs> <laughs> anything simple? See me after you can't class. Ask that one Mark, I cannot tell you how much I've missed you. <laughs> and you know, you know, I, Suzanne will tell you. She will tell you how sincere I am. Even you, Chester. Got a problem. I know, you're married. <laughs> Come on, ask it. Let's do this quick. No, the, the, the first truth where you say um, that... Pure is. Spirit is. Right. Well... I have a problem with the one thing you said. I'm surprised. <laughs> because in my church, anyone who's baptized can get communion. But that's not reciprocated here. Right. So that's, I'm just laying it out, yeah. saying it, done. Go okay. on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go on. <laughs> Since you want to leave it there. I, I hope that we can have dinner one night so we can sit down and... That's not an easy... I mean, obviously, it's not an easy topic, but it's obviously it's one worth because I know it. I know it means a lot to you, um, and I hope you know how much it means to me because you, you have, you have been here for a year now, listening to me say some of these things. So you know how much I admire your courage. But whatever, we, we can we can go on to the next. Yeah, uh, let's I go. Ask by church. Uh, it's Episcopal I just did now. Yeah, it's the Annunciation in the, the Annunciation in the Louisville. Okay. Two, one thing before we start, and it's really important to say here at the outset. One of the easiest things to do when you're reading Chaucer is to read the stories individually and not tie them together. And that's a huge mistake. Even though it's the most natural thing to do because they're so different. You're reading in stories by individuals about different people so they're all different. It's important, this has been a principle all along, to read for holes. We don't read for holes well. One of the points I want to make in a few minutes is, if you look just as an example, if you read the first three tales, Knight's Tale, Miller's Tale, Reeve's Tale, there's an amazing action. You'll see it. If you haven't seen it, you'll come to it. It's amazing. It's really amazing what he's doing. Uh, but remember that. 
be careful of reading pristine, you know, individual works and isolating them from the whole thing. We're the the whole the whole before us are not these individual stories that are isolated. The whole is a journey in which all of them are taking. So every one of these stories has to be set against a pilgrimage. It's a faith journey. What's un, what's assumed in the whole thing is they're all on their way to um, St. Thomas' Shrine. And I've said that before. One of the great themes of Chaucer is that there's a unity in a faith. This is before the Reformation. This is a unified England. The Reformation hasn't taken place. So doesn't matter. I mean, some of these people are really scurrilous people. They're just, they're, I mean, you, I, I, Chaucer, the host wants to take some of these people and string them up. I mean, they're, they're not very nice people. But they're all united in this faith. He's showing us the whole of our humanity. And it's important to remember that what underlies this whole thing is that faith. Um, so we're seeing the best and the worst of us as humans. That's what Chaucer's doing, and I don't think that's an accident. I think he knows exactly what he's doing in that way. In our faith, we, we have to hold on, like Rome. It's Everybody's there. Everybody's there. It's not just the rich or the educated or... It's everybody. So remember that. One of the reasons I'm saying that now, and I want to underline it, I read an article on the um, Man of Law's Tale last night. It just shocked me, absolutely shocked me. The critic was a feminist who's taking a, a feminist view. I, I, I didn't include the, the Man of Law tip, but I've included it now. I, I, well, I am, because it, I, it's, an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary story. It's, it's really extraordinary. Her reading of the story is that it's about incest between a father and a daughter. I'm going to leave it up to you. When you read that story, it's the Man of Law. Her take on it is a woman. This is a story about, and the man, of course, the man is bad. It's a father. He's lusting after his daughter. It's really about incest. I'm going to leave it to you. Read the man, read the man of law tale and um, enjoy it because it's a really good story. And then tell me where you find incest or lust in that story. And you'll get a sense of what modern critics do with this stuff. It's just, it's saying, keep in mind the story, what the story says, not ideas that you got in your head. Read for what's there. Um, because the whole modern world encourages us to make a thing what we want. So read each story to see what's there and keep in mind this whole. As you read, okay? Okay, I'm going to go through this quickly because um, I want to get to the end. Miller's Tale. The, the Miller is drunk. He's a, a, a braggart and drunk and sort of a nasty kind of person. And um, one of the things that he shows us is um, how much um, the people are competing with each other. So if the miller says something bad, bad about a carpenter, the reeve is going to come up because he's got experience as a carpenter and he's going to get back. So one of the great things that runs through Chaucer's story, stories is this sense of rivalry, getting one up on another, showing that you're smarter than somebody else. If you read Chaucer through, you're going to find that, that um, the, the people who turn out to be the worst characters are those who think they're smarter than somebody or better than somebody. They want to show somebody else up, put somebody down, and you'll see that running through 90% but, of the... Good. But isn't that the whole premise of this whole, the, the whole trip? Go ahead. I mean, the host basically what? gave everybody a challenge to, to make the best story, otherwise he's going to make them 
he's going to give them dinner, right? Well, and so, yeah. so there's already this rivalry to see who can well, yeah. make the best story. Yeah, I just want to be clear. The best story doesn't always mean St. Thomas. What, what, you love a thing for the good of itself. What a piano, basketball, it doesn't matter. It's one thing to love the good of something and make it really good in itself, like a good story. It's another thing to tell a story to get one up on another person. The, the, difference, the difference between the I, I two. The difference between the two, and one of them, it's the love of the thing itself that motivates you. You want to, There's something selfless that gets put into it. And the other, there's an envy and a pride. You want to put somebody down, you want to get... And what we're finding in these stories is that most of them have that element. Somebody's trying to get back at somebody or put somebody down or show how smart they are, and they're better than somebody else. So through the whole thing, there's this comic sense of our humanity, these foibles, these weaknesses that we have. In the Miller's tale, the... The Miller tells the story of a carpenter who has this young, beautiful wife. There's a rumor at the house, a lodger, Nicholas, who loves the woman and um, makes a play on her, and she agrees to have sex with him. It's the courtly love theme again. There's not going to be. There's going to be few stories in here that don't have courtly love. Remember, in courtly love, there's always there, there's always somebody outside the marriage bounds because marriage can't satisfy all the passions. So there's this, there's this outside the, the lover. So Nicholas comes on to the girl and she agrees, and he comes with, with this plan, because part of what this story is about is the religious imagination. And you know John, the carpenter, is susceptible to these religious fantasies. Nicholas convinces him that, according to his reading of astrology, that there's going to be another flood like Noah's, and they have to prepare for it. So the carpenter sets up these three tubs hanging from the rafters. And um, on the night when this is all supposed to happen, Absalom, who's a clerk who also loves the girl, comes to their house and tries to woo her. And she will have nothing. She says, go to hell. Get out of here. But he's persistent. And she agrees to give him a kiss. And you know what happens. She sticks her rear out rear end out the window. I'm going to read it in a minute. She sticks her rear end out the window. Now hold on to yourselves, you guys, here. Sticks her rear end out the window, and he kisses her other hole, her other eye, or sorry, her other eye, and runs off, and she titters, and he is so angry and so humiliated that he wants to get back. This getting back is a major theme that runs through the... He goes off to a blacksmith and gets a, um, a branding iron, and heats it and comes back. I'm, I'm going to stop there. Because I want to read, because if you've read, you already know. That's the Miller's Tale. <laughs> the Reeves' Tale um, is similar in this sense. It's about two men who love a, a woman or two, but again, it's men loving a woman. In this case, these two clerks know that the Miller overcharges everybody, he takes advantage of everybody. Um, he, he weighs the scales in favor of himself, so he keeps making money off of people. And they don't want to let that happen. When they arrive, the Miller who's also a churl, and, and this guy is um, not only a churl, but a, I, I don't know the word. There are these men, he's got knives, and he's, he's, he's ready to fight men. Um, there's a violent streak, I think, in this man. He's a little bit different from the carp John, the carpenter in the uh, Millerstown. When the two clerks arrive, 
uh, the miller goes out and sets their horses free, and they have to go chase them. And while they're out chasing them, the miller takes the flour and takes half of it and gives part to the wife to make a cake. So he cheats them. They're out most of the night running, and finally they come back late at night, and the miller allows them to stay. He charges them, but he feeds them. And apparently there's a lot of drinking because that night they go to bed drunk. And the, the miller and his wife and daughter, who's 20 years old, are snoring so loud that um, Alan and John, the two clerks, can't go to sleep. Okay? I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to read some passages, and then I've got some questions for me. Okay, so let me just read. Can you go to, the, go to Chaucer just for a second here? Uh-oh. Okay, turn to 9697. Carpenter comes to the room where Nicholas has started this ploy. He's present, pre pretending as if he's um, in a daze or otherworldly state of mind, so he's susceptible to revelations. Mm -hmm. And um, John, the, the, the carpenter, is, is um, it's the word gullible. And so he's ready to believe this young man, and you know that the young man is just concocting the story because he wants to get his wife in bed. Wow. So in 96. 96. What, Nicholas, hey, look down. Is that a fashion to act? Wake up and think upon Christ's passion. Mm -hmm. I sign you with a cross from elves and sprites. And he began the spell for use at nights in all four corners of the room and out across the threshold too and around about. Jesu Christ and Benedict sainted, blessed his house from creep. You can watch him going around the house for blessing everything because he's afraid demons or wrong spirits are going to get there. Drive away night, hag night, night hags, white Peter Noster. Where did you go, St. Peter's Soster? And in the end, the dandy Nicholas began to sigh, and must it come to pass, he said? Must all the world be cast away? The carpenter replied, was that you say? It's at this point that he tells them about the flood that's going to come. Um, going over to, um, let's see, um, 99. Nicholas tells John the carpenter what he's to do, bottom of 99. The silly carpenter then went his way, muttering to himself, alas, the day, and told his wife in strictest secrecy, she was aware, far more indeed than he, what this quaint stratagem might have in sight, but she pretended to be dead for fright. Alas, she said, whatever it may cost, hurry and help, or we shall be lost. I am your honest, true, and wedded oh, wife. Go, dearest husband, help us to save. One, uh, one hundred at the top. How fancy throws us into perturbation. People can die of mere imagination. I want to just make a comment here. One of the extraordinary things that Chaucer does is carry forward what we call the humanist tradition. <coughs> it's our, if you, the pagan world. It's, it's us as humans in our daily life. Not in church. Whatever goes on at home, at work. It's just going about whatever we do in the world at large. But whatever we do in that world is revealing. 
So he's carrying that humanist tradition forward. So one way of looking at it is what he's doing is bringing faith and reason together. Right now it's a world of reason because what we're seeing is that these people are so susceptible in their religious imaginations to these things that they're losing something of their reason. Chaucer's, Chaucer's showing us that we can check each other. That reason is a good thing for us. It helps us to check ourselves in matters of faith. Because, we just, we, because here we're watching a guy believe that the flood is going to come again and it's on the basis that the, all of this is going to... Wait, just hold on. Can you for a second? Go on over on um, 101. Absalom, this clerk, is another courtly lover. He, he wants to woo the woman. And it's just like a courtly lover, doing what a courtly lover does, at the bottom of 101. As I'm alive, I'll go and tap his window softly at the crow, cock and still is low set on the wall. I shall see Allison and tell her all, my love longing, and I can hardly miss some favor from her. At, at the least, a kiss. I'll get some satisfaction anyway. Comes away with that. Go on over. He comes to the window and tries to persuade her. She says, no, middle of 102. You go away, she answered, you Tom fool. There's no come up and kiss me here for you. I love another, and why shouldn't I too? Better than you by Jesu, Absalom. Take yourself off. I shall throw a stone. I want to get some sleep. You go to hell. But you know she's going to make love for the night, so she's not going to be sleep. Alas, said Absalom, I knew it well. True love is always mocked and girded at. So kiss me if you can do more than that. For Jesu love and for the love of me. And if I do, will you be off, she said. Promise you, darling, answered Absalom. Get ready then, wait, I'll put something on, she said, and then she added under breath to Nicholas, Hush, we shall laugh to death, because the two of them are obviously enjoying the moment. This Absalom went down upon his knees, I am a lord, he thought. Remember, think about how, how Chaucer's making fun of the courtly tradition. Because you know in the courtly tradition in, in the Middle Ages, when a knight gave himself to his beloved, and often a wife, a married woman, he was giving everything. He was sacrificing himself to show what a great lover he was. And we've talked about that, that, that that courtly tradition gets critiqued more and more as the Middle Ages go on, because what we see is that there's something selfish in it, something self-centered, that the man is really doing. The man is doing it a lot for himself, even though he's making these declarations of love to him. We saw it with Palamon in our seat. If you go back... You know, they both said how much they loved, and they started fighting with each other, ready to kill each other. Um, 103. There may be more to come. The plot may thicken. Mercy, my love, he said. Your mouth, my chicken. She flung the window open, then in haste, and said, Have done. Come on. No time to waste. The neighbors here, always on the spy. Um, go down. Dark was the night, as pitch and black as coal. And at the window, out she put her hole. And Absalom, so fortune framed the farce, put up his mouth and kissed her naked arse. Most savorously, before she knew of this, back he started, something was amiss. He knew quite well a woman has no beard. <laughs> Yet something rough and hairy had appeared. What have I done, he said. Can that be you? He goes off and he says, Blow, I'll pay you back for this. Go down. I'll take my soul and sell it to the devil. Um, he is so outraged by what she's done, so humiliated, that he wants to get back. And you know that he goes to this... Um, um, blacksmith and, and gets this branding iron and comes back and he intends to brand her rear end. He comes to the window again except this time Nicholas puts his rear end out, bottom of 104. 
Now Nicholas had risen for a piss and thought he could improve upon the jape and make him kiss his arse ere he escape. And opening the window with a jerk, stuck out his arse, a handsome piece of work. Buttocks and all, as far as to the haunch. <coughs> said Absalom, all to set a launch. Speak, pretty bird, I know not where thou art. This Nicholas at once let fly a fart, as loud as if it were a thunderclap. He was near blinded by the blast, poor chap. <laughs> but his hot iron was ready. With a thump, he smote him in the middle of the rump. Off went the skin, a hand's breadth round about where the hot coulter struck and burned it out. Such was the pain he thought he must be dying, and with mad agony, or mad with agony, he started crying, Help, water, water. The, the uproar is so great that John thinks that the flood is coming, and you know he cuts the, the, the tubs and they all come crashing down. I don't want to go to the end. You know what happens. They come down. Um, Allison and Nicholas make fun of John the husband, and um, Absalom goes off humiliated, um, and Nicholas has got a more than a little bit... Birthday. <laughs> and it ends. It ends with this. And so the carpenter's wife was truly poked as if, as if his jealousy to justify. Because remember, the, the husband is very possessive of her. Um, and Absalom had his, had, has kissed her nether eye, and Nicholas is branded on the bum. And God bring all of us to kingdom come. Now, quick, I want to do this really quickly. Go to the Reeves tale. Um, page 114. They all go to sleep, and because they're all snoring so loudly, Alan decides he's going to make as much of the evening as he can so he's going to jump in the daughter's bed and goes to sleep with her and um, John is feeling like he's sort of left out and not taking advantage of the moment so he decides to go into the wife's bed he moves the crib beside the bed and when she gets up to take a pee um, he goes, she comes to his bed because the crib is there she um, jumps in his bed and the two of them make love so the night passes, and then um, Alan decides to get up and return to the bed, thinking it's the right bed. Right. It turns out to be the bed with John. He jumps in and says he just had this wonderful night with this woman. When, um, when the Miller Hill hears that, he's furious, and the two fight, and they fall to the ground, and um, when they're fighting, the Alan pushes... Um, the miller onto his bed on top of his wife. She starts screaming and reaches for a stick and hits him on the head. Mm -hmm. So it's her blow that puts him out. When he's down on the ground, the two men kick him. And they leave. And let me just read a few passages here just to get the feel of it because it's, it's funny. 114. When what was in the crock had been drunk up to bed, the daughters too, and thereupon to bed went Alan and to bed went John. The miller had taken so much booze unheeded, he snorted like a cart horse in his sleep and vented out other noises loud and deep. His wife joined in the chorus, hot and strong, two furlongs off, you might have heard their song. The wench was snorting too for company. So Alan gets up and he goes to take, have sex with a woman. Um, John's grieving at this, middle of the page, 115. And by the way, Chaucer's dealing with... He, in Old English, he was actually using an Old English dialect. 
so it, it was it wasn't old English and this you know this is a translation this mm -hmm. is not old English so we're getting a strange dialect from the two men to represent this this other part of the country where corn is stolen Navor doubt of that ill luck has followed us and all we're at since no compensation has been offered against war loss I'll take the easement proffered God's soul it should be so indeed none other so he wants to get that is justice is owed to him the miller has taken advantage of them he's taken their money he's taken their wheat he wants his pound of flesh no, no other way to say it so he goes into bed Alan rose up towards the wench he crept the wench lay flat upon her back and slept and ere she saw him he had drawn so nigh it was too late for her to give a cry to put it briefly they were soon at one now Alan play for I will speak of John now John does the same thing um, going over 116 um, the wife comes to the wrong bed middle of the page she found the bed and thinking <coughs> not but good since she was certain where the cradle stood yet not yet knew not where she was for it was dark she well and fairly crept in with the clerk then lay quite still and tried to go to sleep John waited for a while then gave a leap and thrust himself upon this worthy wife was the merriest fit in all her life for John went deep and thrust away like mad it was a jolly life for either lad till the third morning cock began to sing that's when Alan gets up and goes into the wrong bed on 118 um, when the miller is knocked on top of his wife she cries out 118 at the top help she screamed holy cross of Brom holy keep us Lord into thy hands today I call Simon wake up the devil's among us. Now just hold on. Obviously that's figurative, but it says the devil's among us. So just what are we to do with this? You know what happens. Um, the wife gets up, takes a stick, conks her husband. He's on the floor. And the two clerks kick him. Just viciously, meanly kick him. The clerks then beat him well and left him lying and throwing on their clothes. They took their horse and the ground. And remember the one girl, Alan's girl, the daughter, tells him where the cake is hidden. And she says it sweetly. She says, my sweet, as if she's endeared to him because of the sex they've had that night. So they recover their wheat, they get the cake, and they go home. So the miller has lost out in every way. Okay? Um, and this the bumptious miller was well beaten and done out of supper they had eaten and done out of the money that was due for grinding Alan's corn who beat him too. His wife was plumb, so was his daughter. Look, that comes of being a miller and a crook. I heard that proverb when I was a kid. Do evil and be done by as you did. Trickers will get a tricking, so I say. And God that sits in majesty on high, bring all this company, great and small, to glory. Thus I paid out the miller with my story. So the miller tells a story on a carpenter. The reeve now, who's a carpenter's background, gets back. So it's tit for tat. People are getting even with each other. Um, and the question is, where's Christ now? Before, before we, I go to these difficult questions, I've got a couple of things I want you to just think about when you're looking at these three stories. I would call these three stories, if you take, if you take all three of these stories, if you take all three of these stories, I would call them the doorway into the Canterbury Tales. Because they're all about the same thing. And we can watch a descent taking place. We begin with a knight's tale, which is about two men who are lovers of a woman. Everything they do with the woman is absolutely courteous. 
Absolutely. They, they finally have to deny themselves, to give themselves up. Emily follows in suit in that same spirit when Theseus asks her to marry. She consents because she's so enamored of the men. I mean, what they, the way they were willing to give their lives up. So she returns um, the same self-giving act. So we're watching sex take place in a, in a way that's mannerly and respectful, careful, courteous. It's the night tale, and we're seeing virtuous people, even though they're dealing with violence. And Theseus has to reconcile this, right? I mean, he has to put the two... Remember, the, the great focus of the night's tale is this joust. A whole chapter is devoted to building the stadium because it's a way of dignifying, taking what can, what can be murderous and transforming it into something better, where men play by the rules and have to accept whatever the outcome is. So even they're going at it to kill each other, they're accepting the rules, so whoever wins, the other willingly gives it up. They're, they're bound by that. In the Miller's Tale, you've got two men who are after a woman. It's courtly love again. She's married. She's beyond them. Um, and we watch what happens. The <laughs> Nicholas gets his rear end burnt. Um, Absalom is humiliated. It's the one that's sort of strange. Allison gets, in, in, in terms of justice... She's the one who gets off easy. I mean, she doesn't get her rear end burnt or she... But all of them are humiliated, okay? And watch the descent, because we went from something very noble and virtuous with the knight to um, lovemaking. That's, it's, it's still outside of marriage, um, but it's, there's some sense of restraint and order to it. Um, when we get to the Reeves tale, we're in a different world. Some sense. Because what, what we see when the reeds go into bed is they jump on the women, and the women are only too happy to have it. So we've gone from a very worldly-mannered, courtly world to one that's funny. It's like a part parody of courtly romance. To another parody of courtly romance that has a vicious element. And, and I, I want to be really careful. I don't, I don't think we're meant to see that the sex is vicious. It's not. The, the wife enjoys it. The daughter enjoys it. The men enjoyed it. They, I mean, the Chaucer's language, they had a merry time. But it's a, different, it's a different action. Now men are jumping into bed, women are willing to have the sex, so we've got the courtly romance background, but we've gone from one degree to another to an even lower one. So there's a real decline. It's as if that, those three stories off work function as a doorway into the Canterbury Tales because now we're going to enter nitty-gritty, and you know from the stories you've been reading, you're dealing with all manner of sins. So one is, um, we're descending from a courtly world defined in terms of virtue um, to something lower. All three horses turn on a fall because a fall is involved in all three of them. Remember, our, um, Palamon. Wait, our seat fell. Our seat fell. Remember the horse tripped? He fell, killed himself. So what, what turns the action in Knightsdale is a fall from a horse. There's a fall that turns the action in Miller's Tale. When um, Nicholas gets his rear end fried and lets out the shout, John cuts the cords and the tubs come falling down. And there's a fall. And this hysteria and chaos. In the Reeves' tale, there's a fall from the bed onto the floor, and a beating takes place. So in every one, the actions 
the action turns on a fall, and it gets lower and lower and lower. Um, so in the earlier, the first stories, sex is somewhat noble, um, guarded, and somewhat innocent. In the Miller's tale, um, sex loses some of its innocence, and in the Reeves tale, it gets almost animal-like. And what happens at the end is the Miller gets beaten, I mean viciously kicked by the men. So in every story, a, just, a, justness, a justice is given at a different level, to a different kind, because we're, we're descending into, um, let's say, a baser level of, of what humans do with each other. Now, here's my question. Um, where's, where's Christ, or God? Let me put it to Where's God? In the, Chaucer's a Christian. He's, he's a Catholic writer, deeply Catholic. Um, I think one of the greatest comic writers that's ever written, truly. Where's God in these things? The next tale, I think, um, I don't remember his name, but the king, Emily's, like, brother-in-law, I remember him saying something in the back, like, let's not kill each other, let's just, let's fight. Originally, originally, the whole thing was to come together and kill each other, and the winner would win, right? Right, yeah. But then he said, no, 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 these are all really brave knights. I don't want to see anybody, I'm not, I'm careful. You're talking about Theseus at the end? Yeah. 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 Go ahead, so anyhow, I guess what I'm saying is that he stepped in and he basically said, you know, you all are knights, let's just joust until the last minute. He made some other rules. He changed the rules is what I'm saying. Well, he enforced them. Remember, the, we talked about this when, when we met. The, the men are under law. They are, they're all subject to death anyway. Remember we talked about this. They're under law. They were captured. They were prisoners. One was set free. He couldn't come back under pain of another penalty of death, the one escaped. So they owe their lives by law. And according to law, they would have been killed. But Theseus doesn't hold them to the law. He says, let's have a tournament and decide this. Because they already owe their lives anyway. So let it be, let the outcome be determined in, in this joust, and they have it in. But where is God in all of this? Remember what Boethius said, and you can't read Chaucer and not find it. Boethius said, there, there is not an occasion, I've been trying to do this from Supernatural Love, The Wind of Her, there is not a poem that we've read that isn't about a very ordinary thing that doesn't show Christ. A bird, a girl stitching. Boethius saying, there is not an event that looks the way it does on the surface. Every, every piece of misfortune or what appears to us to be bad fortune is good. It has God in it. Now we've got these three stories that, that involve this very obvious descent. And my question is, where is God? Well, God's in the union of a man and a woman, and God's in reconciliation when that happens. Okay, talk about the reconciliation between John and Allison when Allison has just had sex with Nicholas and embarrassed her husband, and I think herself, because it's all, everybody's embarrassed at the end. I, I, the only 
The only justice involving Allison that I can see is because she gets off the two men are either come away with Bert Rearsender is is that my sense is she can't take things as lightly before because think about what could happen. So when when we get this sermon or this moral at the end, it's it's that everybody's learned something. You hope, but where's God? I'm struggling with uh, Carpenter that he is that gullible to someone who's younger. Because usually, you look up to your elders back then. So how is that? That to me just falls apart. The whole story and falls apart. People aren't very staunch in their beliefs at all. If he believes that a younger be spirits of elves, <laughs> and he believes what he's saying and he thinks that there's going to be a second coming oh. Noah. I mean, but people like really... that exist, no? Yeah. Well, they do, but they do. Just get the messages on your cell phone. So what? So just get the messages on your cell phone. Apparently the social security is cutting me off now. Or people see images it's to a but we know there are people like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, oh, in history, yeah. it's yeah. kind of weird. But okay, I guess I'll take it as Let's take the story at its... Even, even if there's something silly about it, because all these are funny, and I think they're meant to be funny. Still, the question I have is, where's God? Is God present in these things or not? Fate. Go ahead. What? Well, it's from, for me, it was... It brought Boethius back to mind again, and, and the whole concept of fate. And I mean, in the case of the Miller, he was suffering from jealousy. You know, he was jealous of his wife, mm -hmm. and his worst fear came true. Right. You know, she was being basically condemned for something that she hadn't done, so she decided to do it. I mean, so there was a fate in all of that for for the for the Miller, and in the in the second story for the. For the reaver, and and there was there was fate there. The guy was a thief. He was stealing from everybody in town, and they all knew it. But because he walked around with swords and knives and everything else, nobody called him out. Well, God called him out. Yeah. Think about the timing of it too. It's really interesting. Wait, let me let me try to put the best spin in this. But it's it's really along the lines of what Fred's doing. Um, everybody gets justice at the end. In some sense, they get what they deserve. Wait, wait, wait. Let me just, you can argue. Hold on. Hold on. Hold, you, you hold on. Um, listen, because we've only got a, a few minutes. A justice is done at the end. So all the sins that were committed are answered. So there's some sense in which things get are brought right. Everybody suffers from their wrongs. Um... Absalom just happens to come to that window on the night that um, Allison's making love with Nicholas. And it's on that night that he gets his rear and fry. You, know, um, you, you can look at the timing of it. What Chaucer's showing us is that, and I, 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 we see this all the time, we pay for our sins, something happens. What, what he's showing us is there's a nature to things. No matter how much people think they can get away with things, it's going to be answered. Something's going to happen. Our, we can get our comeuppance, whatever, however you want to say it. But um, there's a nature to things, and when people play loose with it, it's going to be answered some way. Okay. We can't escape that. The, the, you use the word fate. I would have used the word order or justice. It's you know Boethian that there's an order to things. God is there. He's working. It's, it's what allows him to make that conclusion when he says, 
you know, there's there's no bad fortune, always good fortune. So Allison appears somewhere else here, and she gets her. No, no, I, I have trouble with that. I mean, I my my only the only answer I have that is that that she, she that whole thing came down. I, I can't believe that she doesn't learn. But anyway, she gets off. If you look at what remember happens, that yeah. Chaucer never really finished all the stories he was supposed to, so she was going to. It just didn't happen. Yeah, right. No, here, last question, last question. Here, wait, if you, wait one minute. Lots of teachers, last question, this is really important. Lots of teachers will look at the rhyme scheme, and you know that it's um, rhyme royal. Couplets, A, A, B, B, C, C, every two lines rhymes. Um, I, when I read them, I don't know if you were hearing, I was reading them, but you can hear the rhyme if, if you read it. So let me just take two lines anywhere. And, I'm picking up 115. His wife joined in the chorus, hot and strong. Two furlings off, you might have heard the song. The wench was snorting too for company. Alan, the clerk, and all his melody gave John a poke and said, Are you awake? Do you ever hear such sang, for goodness sake? No. Every two lines rhyme. We talked about this in the Night's Tale. Yeah. Remember, because Chaucer is describing what in the pagan world would have been a tragedy. They're describing the burial of this knight, and people are weeping. It, it is exactly the ending of the Iliad. When the Iliad ends, Hector's being buried. The last several pages are a threnody. It's a lament, a prayer, for this great Trojan who's being buried. Chaucer knows that. He's, he describes those heart-wrenching events with royal couplets. And it's comic. You can't hear it. And get serious. You can't hear it and start crying. You're going to hear it lightly. And I suggested when we met, because that's that's in keeping with our the, the Christian virtues of hope or faith or love. That when bad things happen, something in us is called, is tested for our faith. Now here's the other thing. If so, every two lines rhymes. Okay? You're in the backyard, if I can go at it this way. You're in the backyard. And you turn one way, and you see a, a bird that's beautiful. You turn your glance six feet away, and you see a flower that's beautiful. You turn your eyes another six feet, and you see a tree that's beautiful. You go five more feet, and you see your wife, who's beautiful. Wherever you look in nature, you keep seeing these beautiful things. It's like there's rhyming. What does the fact that they're all beautiful say? That they all have that in common. God is in them. God made them. God. How, how can there be beauty everywhere in the universe in created things? Because you can keep looking. You can go in the backyard and look at all your flowers or plants or trees or... or in my backyard. Wait. <laughs> that means you need some work to do in your backyard. Wait. Is everybody following? We don't even see it anymore because we take it for granted. If there's all that beauty in everything we look at, it's like rhyming. <laughs> Teachers will present this stuff like it's technical. Just, just rhyming. If you happen to be a Christian influenced by Boethius, and somebody says you take him seriously, there's nothing, there's no bad fortune in the world. God is behind everything, working to bring it good. Then it's a serious question. So it's either just a technical thing and he's doing it for sound, or... It's a way of reinforcing his faith. That everywhere, everywhere you look, you hear tunes going off, rhyming, beauty, order, harmony. Um, 
How many people see it? It's visible around us, everywhere. How often do we see it? How much do we just ignore it because we're so preoccupied in the world? What I'm suggesting is, I've been doing it all along, that poets keep calling us to see um, Gerard Manning Hopkins. Set line. I can. And we've got to. Here. Each mortal thing does one thing, and the saint deals out that being, endures each one dwells, sells, goes itself, myself, its sphinx. That's everything in creation. Not a few things, everything. Everything. Chaucer, um, um, Hopkins isn't picking and choosing. I say more, the just man justices keeps grace that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye is. Christ, for Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and in eyes not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. What Dante was showing us in the Divine Comedy was God is everywhere. What these poets are showing us with their rhyming and their stories is there is this order and beauty. It doesn't matter. You can be talking about 16 different events because that's what Chaucer does. He goes from one thing to another to another to another. But what connects them is constant rhyming, is constant beauty and order. I don't think that's technical, what the modern teacher would say. That's partly an expression of a faith that we've been looking at in all these peoples. So let me leave you with that. We've, we've got to go. Mm-hmm. Next week we do the, three, the, three. the uh, it's all the ones dealing with the corruption in the church. Mm. We should be right at home. <laughs> only three? Yeah, only three. Right. Do we have the whole thing? Oh, it's just got warm in here. That's just, that's just yeah. AC. Do we have all swell that it's swell? I'm going to order. Pardon? Okay, so thank you. I should have. I thought maybe we'd missed it. No, I'm going to order it. Okay.